Welcome to the Black Dahlia and Blue Dahlia podcast. This is episode six. I'm your host, Scott Tracy. The police have located Lynn Martin, an ex-roommate who had lived with Beth Short in Hollywood and who disappeared at the same time as Beth. The discovery of Miss Martin climaxed a backtracking by 1,000 officers of the gay path cut through Hollywood and Los Angeles nightlife by the Dahlia. Detective Lieutenant William Cummings, who traced Miss Martin to the Valley Auto Court, said she had a record of eight arrests on juvenile charges in Long Beach. The girl, who appeared to be in her early 20s, will be 16 next Saturday. She broke her stoic resistance to investigators' continuous questioning when Cummings asked her about the scars. Through acquaintances of the girl, the detective had learned that her upper body was scarred by the removal of tattooings. When confronted by the detective's apparent intimate knowledge of her past, Miss Martin was quoted as blurting out, Oh, what's the use of trying to hide anything from you? She then admitted to her juvenile record and other more recent associations. Investigation had traced Miss Martin to a motel on Ventura Boulevard where she was seen as late as midnight, January 14th, the night before Miss Short's severed body was found in a vacant lot near busy Crenshaw Boulevard. The police hoped for a useful lead from Lynn Martin. Of course, she wasn't hiding because she was involved in the crime, Lynn is only guilty of being underage. Lynn has not been in contact with Beth for many weeks. Although there are many witnesses who are sure that they saw Beth Short in the days prior to her death, many of these observations from strangers turn out to be false leads. The baggage handler that sees red with a black-haired woman who asks about Alaska turns out to be mistaken. A Greyhound bus driver was wrong when he believed that Beth was on his route from Santa Barbara to downtown Los Angeles on January 14th. Elizabeth Short's appearance is striking and uncommon. There's no such thing as a goth look in 1947. The heavy makeup resonates with an identity that one would associate with a silent film star or geisha girl. Neither of these is a foundation for a movie career, but it makes a dramatic impression. As the newspapers describe her contrasting appearance of black hair and pale skin, however, if you think about it, that description is going to fit Elvira as well as Dita Von Teese. I believe the witnesses who knew Elizabeth Short when they speak of seeing her during the lost days and tend to be dismissive of strangers who think they saw Elizabeth based on newspaper descriptions, with one very important exception, Meryl McBride, a policewoman. A police bulletin is issued on the 21st of January, seeking witnesses who would assist in the investigation. Quote, wanted information Whereabouts of Elizabeth Short between January 9th and 15th, 1947. Description, female, American, 22 years, 5 foot 6, 118 pounds, black hair, green eyes, very attractive, bad lower teeth, fingernails chewed to the quick. This subject was found brutally murdered, body severed and mutilated, 
January 15, 1947, at 39th and Norton Avenue. Subject on whom information wanted was last seen January 9th, 1947, when she got out of the car at the Biltmore Hotel. Subject makes friends with both sexes and frequented cocktail bars and night spots. Note the police seek information starting with her arrival at the Biltmore. Of course, Beth is seen leaving the hotel. The police clearly hope for more Biltmore witnesses. Elizabeth Short is not reported missing on the evening of the 9th or 10th or 11th or 12th or 13th or 14th. The police have witnesses who have seen her, but no knowledge where she spends the night. As I've noted previously, where is she missing from? She doesn't live anywhere, so who would report her missing? Ann Toth thinks she's in Berkeley. Joseph Fickling believes she's on the way to Chicago. Phoebe Short thinks her daughter is working at a naval hospital in San Diego. Mark Hansen declined to allow her to return to his home, and Lynn Martin hasn't seen or spoken to her for over two months. Beth is homeless. There are only two options for these seven days. She's been abducted and all the witnesses are wrong, or she's been depending on the kindness of strangers, as she did in San Diego, and is sleeping on couches until her luck runs out. The local newspapers tell a story as a Hollywood tragedy of abduction and torture. The out-of-town papers tell a story of a squandered life tossed aside like a cigarette. In another decade, Beth might have been a beatnik or a hippie. She's only 22 years old, but has seen more of America than most 22-year-olds. Emotionally, she still is a teenager, infatuated with different men on different nights, a daydreamer and freeloader, not much of a doer. Age-wise, emotionally, I would say that Lynn Martin is the 22-year-old and Beth Short is the 15-year-old. The police bulletin says that Beth is friendly. In fact, she has few friends. It becomes frustrating for the police to find that so many recognize Beth but don't know her at all. Her drunken father has abandoned her twice, and Beth seems to carry that betrayal within her, along with this idea that the world owes her. And folks do feel sorry for her and try to help. Oddly, she's not as thankful as these good Samaritans might expect. Beth is narcissistic, but not malicious. She lies easily and often. I was bothered quite a bit when I first started to research the crime about this pattern of dishonesty, and now I think of it as situational. Sometimes Beth lies when she first meets someone to add depth to her story. She gives herself a past. She'd been married and had a baby and lost the child. Sometimes she gives herself a future as a movie extra or model going to Chicago. Beth simply is inventing a more interesting version of herself to present to others. Indeed, she may introduce herself as Beth, other times Betty or Elizabeth. Is one name better than another? She's trying them out. When police interviewed acquaintances, they'd find a trail of disappointed men and disapproving women. Since police think criminals lie in the eyes of police detectives, like Hansen and Brown, her actions are those of a grifter. Beth has no job. How does the rent get paid? Why is she hanging around in bars like a freelance B-girl? 
Hansen sees a young woman with a game plan of a carny. Hansen realizes that Beth's dating game is a rigged sideshow. No Cupid doll for you, sailor, but thanks for picking up the tab. As of this date, the current police thinking was that Beth would date men for free meals and save her passion for women. Quoting the Bakersfield Californian, It sounds like a cheap detective thriller, said Captain Donahoe of the Homicide Squad. But we finally were forced to turn to the theory that a woman was at the bottom of it. Donahoe pointed to other mutilation murders in which women, in jealous rages, hacked their girlfriends to death. The sighting of Beth during these seven days that strikes me as the most solid is the commentary of bartender Buddy Lagore, who told of observing Beth short with two brunettes. Quote, always fastidious and proud of her apparel, she appeared disheveled and frantic-eyed that night. She looked as if she'd slept in her clothes for days. Her sheer black dress was stained and crumpled. She always wore the best nylons, but this time she had no stockings on. See, I have to believe a bartender that notices nylons. Continuing, her hair was straggly. Lipstick had been smeared on a sort of a hit-or-miss angle. The powder on her face was caked. Another thing I noticed, she was cowed, instead of being gay and excited the way I've always seen. Also, she was friendly and nice to me, instead of acting like a grand lady and bossy. Lagore said Miss Short and the two brunettes sat at a corner table whispering as they sipped beer. They left after an hour. Another sighting, a red-haired man entered the Gayway Bar on 514 South Main Street on the night of January 12th and asked a dancer, Betty Blake, for Beth. Betty Blake knew Beth and knew that she'd been in the bar earlier that night. The Jewel Room and the Gateway Bar were among the downtown locations that were rumored to cater to a homosexual crowd. During the war years, the military posted signs at every place that they suspected as being a gay bar, that's, and this sign said, out of bounds to military personnel. With the war over, a new sign is posted next to the door at the Gateway Bar, Servicemen Welcome. Betty Burke says, she saw Beth sitting alone in the bar earlier that night, but did not say so to the red-haired man. Homosexuality is classified as mental illness at this time. The public strongly associates homosexual behavior with pedophilia. Dr. DeRiver, the LAPD's criminal psychiatrist, considers homosexuals to be, quote, a grave danger to society and seducers of children. In sexual orgies, Deriver added, they were even prone to commit murder. I don't know what to say, other than that is a baseless and idiotic claim. However, Deriver has a list of 10,000 sexual deviants. The Jewel Room has an important role to play during the missing seven days, but there's a fair amount of confusion. The LAPD struggles to find willing witnesses, and when the Crown Grill witnesses supply information, it's sometimes contradictory. One witness will say they saw Beth, another worker will say, no, she wasn't here that night, leaving the testimonies at odds and open to interpretation. If we go to various websites, we'll notice a variance of opinion 
about the jewel room and the Crown Grill. Let's start with Larry Harnish. Quote, the Crown Jewel Cocktail Room, also known as the Crown Jewel Grill, the Crown Grill, and the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge, 427 West 8th Street, was just another downtown bar where people thought they'd seen Elizabeth Short. There's a shadow, but only a shadow of truth, because her roommate, Ann Talk, sometimes met her boyfriend there. What Ann Toth says in her testimony to the investigators, Beth may have gone down there because of my going down there with Leo, but I never saw her there. Leo Himes is more of a regular, and he knows the first names of three of the bartenders at the Crown Grill. At the Deranged Crime website, this ex they accept the possibility that Beth went there. Quote, she may have been headed for the Crown Grill at 8th and Olive. She'd been there before, and perhaps she'd hoped to bump into someone she knew. After all, she needed a place to stay. When asked if they'd seen Beth, most of the patrons were reluctant to talk to the police. By day, the bar catered to the lunch crowd, lots of men escorting women who were not their wives. By night, the clientele was mostly gay men. Because homosexuality was illegal, there are only a few places where men could meet, end quote. Well, certainly police investigators are aware of the reputation of the bar, and they spoke to Ann Toth about Beth's attitude toward lesbians, asking, didn't she, quote, indicate to you she wasn't fond of queer women? Ann replied, no. She always made the statement, very queer people in this town. Queer people, referring to both men and women, I guess. That's the only thing referring to queers that she ever mentioned. Why did Beth go to all the trouble of wearing falsies and all that to attract a queer lesbian? Because they either go for you or they don't go for you. They don't care if you have any shape. As far as that goes in my estimation, I think she was definitely out to attract men. I can't see any way of her wanting to attract a woman because I would definitely notice it. I've been around enough to notice it in this town. I would notice it. Quoting Wikipedia, Beth was allegedly seen by patrons of the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge at 754 South Olive Street. Well, there's a new address. In the district attorney files, quote, Elizabeth Short and her friend Marjorie Graham and Ann Toth were known drinking customers of this bar. Chris Anya, a waitress who started working at the Crown Grill after the death of Elizabeth Short told District Attorney Investigator James McGrath that she heard from fellow employees that Beth was a customer and that she was seen in the company of a beautiful redhead, a waitress named Kay Graham, and a blonde girl called June Pino. Anya also said she heard the three of them, quote, spent several nights at a hotel situated just above this cocktail bar known as the Olive Hotel. At the time of the grand jury investigation, hotel records did not indicate a room had been occupied by any of the three women. However, McGrath stated the records were in poor condition and further checking was scheduled. Note that Anya is a hearsay witness. Police certainly struggle with getting straight answers. The night bartender at the Crown Grill on January 9th was Joe Scalise. 
who seemed to have issues with women who declined his advances. Hitting on women should never lead to hitting women, and so his violence led him to be a suspect at one point. This is the question of the day. What is a raging heterosexual bartender with anger management issues doing working in a gay bar? One more confusing crown grill bit of testimony. Another relevant file from the DA office states, Frances Campbell is said to be bisexual by her associates at the Crown Grill Bar. Waitress Bernice Smith and waitress Marjorie Underbrook all knew the victim as a customer of this bar two blocks from the Biltmore Hotel. Suspect Campbell stated she was on duty the night of the victim's disappearance. A few days after the murder, Officer Ed Barrett was told by a bartender in the Crown Grill that the victim was in there that night alone. Suspect, Francis Campbell, never came forward with this information. Well, what are we to make of this place with three names and two addresses and a wildly different clientele based day and night, very Jekyll and Hyde? And this question is a little bit of a Gordian knot in the investigation. I sliced through this knot with a matchbook that I bought on eBay because inside the Crown Grill matchbook cover is a neighborhood map that shows that the Crown Grill is at 429 West 8th Street, and the Jewel Room is at 754 South Olive. The matchbook advertises the Crown Grill sells breakfast, lunch, dinner, late night snacks, and cocktails. There is no such place as the Crown Jewel Grill or the Crown Grill Cocktail Room. The Jewel Room and the Crown Grill were separate businesses and had separate liquor licenses. There's a picture of this matchbook cover on the website along with a, a better map. The Olive Hotel is the primary tenant of the building, operating the two floors of rooms above. And so a guest would enter the small lobby on the ground floor and check in with the clerk and then go upstairs to the rooms or eat or drink on the first floor. The Hotel Olive opened as the Rockwell in 1906. The Crown Grill opened in the 30s and changed its name to Lou Silver's Crown Grill in 1956 and closed in the 60s. The Jewel Room opened in 1941 and closed its doors in 1979. The Hotel Olive address is 750 South Olive. The Jewel Cocktail Room entrance is just south of that, 754 South Olive. The Crown Grill benefited the Hotel Olive as an on-site restaurant. The Jewel Room benefited the Hotel Olive by offering a potential stream of cash clients who might need a confidential and perhaps temporary hotel room. Knowing this makes sense now that the DA finds the Hotel Olive records to be in poor condition when the rooms are often occupied by men who don't wish to check in. The Hotel Olive would have to have a second ledger. Beth and her friends could smile and influence the hotel clerk to allow them to stay in an empty, off-the-books room. George Bacos was the brother of Francis Campbell. George is one of the acquaintances of Elizabeth Short to comment on her makeup. Quote, I didn't want to kiss her because of all that goop she used on her face. I'm used to nice, cultured girls. Bacos, head usher at the NBC studios at Sunset and Vine in Hollywood, dated Lynn Martin, parked with Elizabeth Short, 
and sourced musical talent for the jewel room. Investigators asked George, did you ever see her at any time talking to any queer women? Bacos answered, I don't believe I did, no. Likely this is not the truth because I think it's quite possible that he took her to the jewel room. The union talent was not always paid for their services, and so the owners of the jewel room are listed in the 1947 defaulters list of the American Federation of Musicians. So Jack Silverman, Harold Dimsdale, Leonard Castle, Carl Green, and Harry Weiss are listed as proprietors. Harry Weiss is our focus. Quote, the Jewel Room at 754 South Olive, unlike most other gay bars in the neighborhood that might serve a more flamboyant client, the Jewel Room had a fancy dress code and was considered discreet and elegant. A driver's license was needed to enter. There was a code of conduct in such bars that normally prohibited any same-sex touching, making it difficult at times to tell a gay bar from a straight one, end quote. Overly flamboyant behavior could have dire economic and social consequences because police actively prosecuted and shamed homosexuals. Quote, owned by lawyer Harry Weiss, the proprietor of two other gay bars who supposedly once sprung Tab Hunter from a gay arrest, Weiss, dubbed the faggot lawyer by judges, purportedly gave the police tips regarding the identities of his gay patrons. The vice squad then passed on Weiss's business card to any man they arrested, and Weiss paid the police half of any legal fees he earned from the resulting cases. Clearly, the jewel room is a self-enclosed environment. They have a dress code. That means they have a bouncer to examine the driver's license. So a Crown Grill guest or worker would not have a clear view of the jewel room's discreet and elegant clientele. So if a bartender in the Crown says Beth Short was there that night alone, we don't always know that that is referring to the Crown Jewel Room or the Crown Grill. Frances Campbell is shamed in the DA report as an unwilling witness because she never came forth with certain information. Most likely she was not in the correct room that night to see Beth. It matters, I think, that the Jewel Room has musical entertainment. Maybe nothing more than a piano bar, but it's going to give a girl like Beth a reason to go alone to relax and not be interrupted. It seems clear to me that Joe Scalise would tend bar in the grill, not in the jewel room. No doubt an inside door would open the jewel room to the Hotel Olive and to the Crown Grill. But the two businesses don't need the same hours of operation. The jewel room has no need to be open for breakfast or lunch and the dress code eliminates all the riffraff and helps many patrons who wish to remain discreet. A demand to show your driver's license was also helpful in suppressing police harassment, given if a cop came in, he couldn't be undercover because the bouncer would know his real name. And so I feel very comfortable in rewriting the sentence that I spoke earlier about Beth leaving the Biltmore in the direction of the Crown Grill where she might bump into a friend that could help her because she needs a place to stay. I suggest Elizabeth took the Olive Street exit from the Biltmore Hotel in the direction of the Hotel Olive, where the hotel clerk could be her, quote, friend. And so all these details give me confidence that Beth was seen at 8th and Olive. 
It's perfectly understandable that Frances Campbell, bisexual waitress, and other workers at the jewel room and the Crown Grill would be reluctant witnesses when talking to the police because there would be significant consequences to their friends who would face jail time and fines for a victimless crimes. There's no missing leak. There are simply too many sightings by those who know her. And Beth is recognized by the strangers in places that one would expect Beth to be, outside the taboo nightclub on the boulevard or getting into taxi cabs. The most significant Missing Week event involves policewoman Meryl McBride. The treatment of McBride by her superiors is the key to understanding the why of the missing seven days narrative imposed by the LAPD. Steve Hodell interviewed McBride in 2001 when she was 88 years old. McBride remembers calming Beth down, then accompanying her back to the Main Street bar where they recovered Beth's purse. The threatening man was gone. After Elizabeth assured McBride that she was okay, the officer left, but confirmed that she saw and spoke to Beth just 30 minutes later when she exited a second bar accompanied by two men and a woman. It is significant that the out-of-town newspapers report this incident without bias. From the article in the San Francisco Examiner, there is a sub-headline in bold stating fourth suspect. Policewoman Merrill McBride related that the girl, so filled with terror that she was crying, ran up to McBride in a downtown bus station and asked for protection against an ex-Marine boyfriend who once threatened to kill her if he found her with another man. The girl explained that she had just encountered the Marine in a bar and had been so frightened that she ran out without her purse and wraps. McBride went into the bar with the girl where she retrieved those articles. The policewoman advised Miss Short to go home, but the girl returned to the bus station explaining, my daddy's coming in two hours. Let's compare this to the Los Angeles Times. The sub-headline is very different. Resemblance doubted. Policewoman Meryl McBride, who said the victim looked like a girl that she talked with on Main Street last Tuesday night, was more dubious about the resemblance after seeing Elizabeth Short's photograph. The policeman said the girl came to her in a bus station saying, quote, someone wants to kill me, and then told of a former serviceman suitor's meeting her in a bar and repeating a threat on her life should he find her with another man. Policewoman McBride said she later saw the girl re-enter the bar and emerge with two men and another woman. She told the policewoman she was to meet her parents at the bus station later. Wow. So it's very revealing to compare these two stories because the Los Angeles Times omits Elizabeth asking the LAPD for protection, Elizabeth crying and being filled with terror, and McBride going into the bar with Elizabeth. No out-of-town newspaper doubts Meryl McBride's credibility. No out-of-town newspaper walks back McBride's identification of Elizabeth Short. Not the Atlanta Constitution, the Baltimore Sun, the Des Moines Register, not even the San Bernardino Sun. Meryl McBride is a serious PR problem in Los Angeles for the police department because Beth Short seeks protection on the day that she's murdered. That's not a problem for San Francisco or Atlanta or Baltimore. But the LAPD uses its influence with city newspapers to throw McBride under the bus to save face. 
Once it's understood why the LAPD chose to smear McBride in 1947, there is every reason to accept her truthful story today. The most important thing to happen on this day is a phone call to the editor of the Examiner, James Richardson. I must congratulate you on what the Examiner has done in the Black Dahlia case. Thank you. You seem to have run out of material. That's right. Maybe I can be of some assistance. We need it. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send you some of the things she had with her when, shall we say, she disappeared. What kind of things? Her address book, her birth certificate, a few other things she had in her handbag. When will I get them? Within the next day or so. See how far you can get with them. I must say goodbye. You may be trying to trace this call. Well, wait a minute. And the line is dead. The package from the killer will be mailed tomorrow and arrive the day after. One more thing. In the news this day, headline, skeleton of woman found near Victorville. A woman's skeleton was found yesterday near U.S. Highway 66, about 10 miles south of Victorville, wrapped in a quilt which was bound with a sash cord. The skeleton lay in a shallow grave three miles from Miller Corners and about 125 feet from the highway. Surveyors unearthed a shallow grave about 16 inches deep where deputies said the body apparently had been buried nude and estimated three to six months ago. There are no bone fractures to indicate violence. How is this connected to the Black Dahlia murder? There is no connection. The story occupies space in the newspapers for one day, and it occupies investigators for a week. There's no character arc, there's no identity, no suspects, no grieving family, no story. The Black Dahlia case is a maze of dead-end clues and false sightings, an address book of a hundred acquaintances and no friends, a trunk filled with photos of ghost lovers, and letters that are never mailed, and a cryptic telegram. Elizabeth Short's life was a cipher, a tabula rasa. Her death is a puzzle, a Rorschach test. This dead woman outside Victorville is so anonymous that her life is a void. The tragedy is her life is erased. No books will be written about her. Her death is a period at the end of a sentence. I can't call it a mystery. No more mystery than the mystery of sand something to ponder. Until next time.